Pastor Benji was very gracious to me. I asked him for a couple of hooky days this week, and I had a couple other big appointments happen. And so I asked my friend Paul Mills uh, once again to speak for us. And I think this will be the last time that I do an introduction for him before he comes up and speaks. Uh, yes, he will likely come up here again. Uh, but Paul is a man who loves Jesus, and he loves uh, getting into his word and learning more about what it says and how to be a better communicator of God's word. In fact, he loves Jesus so much that recently he volunteered, crazy kid that he is, uh, to meet with Pastor Benji and I and one other guy, and we're going to be talking about one of those crazy Puritans, John Owen, and his view of the Christian life. And so uh, I, without hesitation, invite my brother Paul to come up here so I can pray with him and with us so that he uh, can share God's word with us. So let's, let's pray. Lord, one more time, we come before you. I ask, Lord, that you would open Paul's mouth and heart and open our ears and heart. Lord, remove from all of us those things that would distract us from hearing and obeying your word and to become more and more the men and women that God that you have created us to be. Bless us, Jesus, is our plea. Meet us now so that we can bring glory to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I dislike speaking in public. This is scary. I have this microphone staring at me in the face here. Somebody called me a dwarf earlier because I'm growing my beard out. I'm still growing it out, though. I'm actually going to be growing it a lot longer. Tonight, I want us to look at Romans 11. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Romans is one of my favorite letters in all the New Testament. I love the New Testament. But Romans is really dear to my heart. It's influenced me profoundly, as well as many within history of the Christian church, not least the reformer Martin Luther. I'm going to put a brief plug in here to read the entire epistle to the church in Rome. This, this is what Martin Luther says. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The better it tastes, the more we deal with it. By the way, I don't want to hear anybody complaining about Benji spending too much time in Hebrews. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 15 years preaching on Romans. How long has this building here been around? Ten. He was preaching longer than this building's been around, just on Romans. I'm not going to ask us to memorize all the Romans tonight, and I'm not going to go spend 15 years on this. We're just going to cover the doxology that Paul has here in Romans 11, and we're going to praise God for who he is tonight. Paul tasted the gospel, and he cries out in praise in this passage. And since this is a doxology and we're praising God, could you please stand with me as I read God's word? 
starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just may we praise you tonight. I ask that you work through our heads, our minds, into our hearts, and that you open our hearts to your word, and that we praise you like Paul praised you. May we be in awe of who you are. May it transform our lives. Help Romans. I encourage everybody here to read Romans and hear about your story of redemption. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your precious name, amen. You can all be seated. Years ago, I was in San Diego. I was doing a shipwreck dive. And I get out in the water. I've, I've, I've done all the instructions. I've done all the reading, the safety tips of scuba diving. And I was ready to scuba dive, to do a shipwreck dive. I get out in the water. And usually with a shipwreck dive, you'll have a buoy at the surface. And then you'll have a descent line that runs all the way down to the boat. This particular dive, it went down 105 feet. And I get out to the buoy and I'm hanging onto the descent line. And that morning, it was more choppy than usual. I'm getting swayed, tossed back and forth, back and forth. And as I start to descend, I'm gripping that descent line. I'm gripping it as I go down. The visibility wasn't good that morning. It was about 15 feet. So I could see about 15 feet around the descent line. Everything past that was just a dark void. And the water was cold. I'm slowly descending down that descent line. And as I get to about 80 feet down, I see the boat. They sunk a Canadian destroyer. It was 150 feet in length. It was massive. And at that moment, when I see it, as I'm floating down, I feel like Superman. I'm coming down onto this boat. I was in awe. Because when I thought about the expanse of the ocean, how massive the ocean was, and how large this boat was, I just saw how much of a small speck I was. There's a saying in scuba diving, when you get in that water, you're no longer top of the food chain. I felt like a speck. At 105 feet, the boat sat. But see, the Apostle Paul, had more, much more depth. He descended a lot more than 105 feet in Romans. And he praised God. He was in awe. You see, when I saw that boat, I was excited. I want to tell everybody, at, right at that moment, and the only thing that came out, what does the voice sound like in a regulator as you're breathing through it, the breathing apparatus? And it was just... Is garbled. You couldn't understand, but I was excited. I want to tell everyone at that moment. By the grace of God, the Apostle Paul praised God. He was in awe. And in these understandable, understandable words, he praises God. And he found out as he went down this descent line that God's descent line never ends. And because God's descent line never ends, we sing praise. The Christian philosopher, Dr. William Lane Craig, 
he had this article, it's called Intellectual Neutral. And he talks about how Western evangelical churches are falling into this anti-intellectualism. We don't like to take a thought and think about it abstractly. We don't like to spend time thinking through thoughts. We want snippets of information right away. Facebook, show me the headlines. Twitter, I want to go ahead and send out a tweet. And we want it quick and fast. But the gospel in Romans, Paul was not giving us snippets of information. He was giving us thoughts that are so deep that we have to think through them. Craig says this, Our churches are filled with Christians who are idling and intellectual neutral. As Christians, their minds are going to waste. One result of this is an immature, superficial faith. People who simply ride the roller coaster of emotional experience are cheating themselves out of a deeper and richer Christian faith by neglecting the intellectual side of that faith. The spirit of anti-intellectualism doesn't just play in the way we view God completely. It trickles down. It doesn't just play into our liturgy, how we sing in our worship. It plays down into our doctrine of God, how we view God. I made a term for it. I called it Kurik Coffee Maker Christianity. <laughs> At home, I have a Kurik Coffee Maker. And I like to get my coffee simple. I like to just pop up this machine, and I take this little cool thing. It's called a Kurik K-cup. It's got grounds in it. I pop it in, push it down, and I push one button. Simple coffee. Many of us treat Christianity the same way. We want simple faith. But the Apostle Paul, as he strings through this, he builds out this descent line all the way through the first 11 chapters of Romans. He wasn't drinking Kurik coffee. He was drinking French press. See, on the weekends, I drink French press because it takes, takes longer. You have to get this beaker, and you have to set it down, and you have to go get your grounds, and you have to ground them up a certain way, and you stick them in the beaker, and then you have to go get hot water, and you have to get the exact amount of hot water that you need, you pour it in, you stir it, so you're mixing the source of the goodness. You're mixing the source of the taste, the coffee grounds, with the water. And then you have to wait four minutes. With, in our culture, our fast-paced culture, four minutes seems like an eternity. <laughs> seems like 15 years. You sit there and you wait patiently, and that coffee, those grounds, mix in with that water. And, we, and then you push down with a plunger, and you, you take the coffee, and you drink it, and it tastes good. Just like Martin Luther said, the more you deal with Romans, the better it tastes. Paul didn't practice, he didn't teach a curate coffee kind of Christianity. He taught French press. The more one deals with it, the, more, the better it tastes. You see, the Apostle Paul, he started at the top of the descent line where the buoy was at. He starts at the surface in Romans 1.16. That's the start of this doctrinal descent. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jew and the Gentile. It's the start of the doctrinal descent line. And he takes us down, all the way down. He's diving, he's diving, and he keeps going. And then he wraps it up in verse 32 of Romans. If you look at verse 32, the Apostle Paul says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. 
He's wrapping up this descent line. He starts off with the Jews and the Gentiles at the top. He's starting the doctrinal descent, and he makes his way all the way down, all the way to chapter 11. Back then they have chapters, but I'm just going to say chapter 11. Verse 32, and he, talk, he brings it back to the Jews and the Gentiles, and God showing mercy to both. And on this, this doctrinal descent line, when he wraps it up, he's in awe. Doctrine is not boring. Doctrine is not for dead guys. Doctrine is not for smart dead guys. Doctrine is not for nerds like Paul. Doctrine is even for laymen. It's not lame. <laughs> Doctrine is not boring. It overwhelmed the Apostle Paul, and when he gets to verse 33, all he can say is, oh, the depths. This is deep. You see, gospel truths or doctrine has to enter our heads first. And when it enters our heads, it then dives deep down into our hearts. It dives into the recesses of our hearts and it soaks in there. And the gospel becomes real. Before his great conversion, called the Tower Conversion, Martin Luther was tormented by Romans 1.17, which talks about the justice of God. It says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther was tormented with this because he thought what this was saying is that we had to live a certain way to the law, that it was our righteousness that had to be at a certain standard for God. But as he descends this descent line of doctrine, then he sees the truth that righteousness is a gift. Luther didn't think doctrine is boring. This is what he says. I meditated night and day. Get some water. It's humid outside, but for some reason I don't have any moisture on my lips. <laughs> I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it, as it is written. The just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives, by a gift of God. That is by faith. I begin to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel. But it is a passive justice. In other words, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. The gospel has become real. Open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. Later on he says, I exalted the sweetest word of mine, the justice of God. With as much love as before I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. The doctrinal descent line that Paul lays out is not boring. It should affect our lives. It should go to our, from our heads into our hearts. Both Paul and Luther and many others saw that this descent line of God's never ends, and it resulted in praise. And because God's descent line never ends, we need to grab hold of the gospel. When I was descending that descent line, the waters were choppy. I had to hold on to that descent line. Even when I was holding on to it, I was getting rocked back and forth. 
See, now we're getting rocked back and forth by the waves of our culture. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, we feel that pressure getting tossed back and forth. And we have to hold on to this doctrinal descent line that Paul has given us to understand that God has a plan. And he's had this plan even before we existed, before humankind existed. And that should, make a, that should give us comfort no matter what happens. The Apostle Paul ushers praise for God's greatness. And it should give us comfort as we grab onto this descent line. Paul praised God for his greatness and for God's sovereignty. He's in control. Paul tells us God's judgments are unsearchable. We're getting swayed back and forth by the waves of the, our culture. And we're asking God, why is this happening? And we can't completely figure out why God allows certain things to happen. His judgments are unsearchable, as Paul tells us. When we think of judgments, we think of eternal judgment, end times. But what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about decisions, his decrees. These decisions in his ultimate redemptive plan, we can't figure them all out. But Paul praises God, as we should, because God has been working his plan much longer than all of us have existed. We ask, why does a shooter go in and kill nine people in a school? Why does somebody go into Sandy Hook Elementary and murder 20 children? Why are babies being boarded by the millions? We ask, why? The underlying issue with these massacres at these schools, it's not gun control. It's not political. It's a sin issue. As we follow this descent line down, we see Paul laying it out, and we should not be surprised that we see this. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, Death spread to all men. Paul's given us, he's, he's laying out this doctrinal descent line, and we follow it and we follow it. Sin is the issue, but God's descent line never ends. And as we grab a hold of this descent line, we see more clearly with a realistic view of the world. But if we don't hold on to that descent line, if we don't grab a hold of the gospel, the dis doctrinal descent line that Paul gives us, it seems hopeless, and it seems bleak, and it seems like we're 15 feet away from this descent line in the void. But Paul lays out hope as he descends down this descent line. He says in Romans 8 that the creation has been groaning. It's been waiting. It's been waiting for its redemption. Not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We have a hope. We have a light along this along this a descent line going down. Paul then goes on to the, through the passage. He says that God's ways are inscrutable. His paths are untraceable. Think about if you're hunting and you, you hit an animal and you're trying to trace it out and you lose the trace, so you can't track it anymore. That's what Paul's saying. We try to track God's ways and his ultimate plan and we can't track it down. But by the grace of God, we've been given a descent line from Paul for what God's revealed to him to give to us. When shipwreck diving, there's something very important. Before you enter any boat, you have to have a tether reel. You, and it has a nylon line, like a fishing line. And what you have to do is you have to wrap it on the outside of the boat. 
and then you, you take it in with you as you go into the boat. Because when you're encapsulated inside a boat, there's no light coming from anywhere above. And so that, li that line there is your lifeline. Because if you lose that, you get disorientated. Because when you're under there and there's no light, you don't know what's up, down, left, or right. It's our lifeline. In our culture, the moral morality in our culture is so inverted, so out, out of whack, that we don't know what's up, left, up, down, left, right. God's trying to figure out how God's work in his redemptive plan can be the same way. It's like you're not having that lifeline there, and we're trying to figure out where we're going. But Paul's given us a descent line. Paul's given us a lifeline, how to trace out what God has revealed to us. After talking about the depth of God's riches, he's down at this bottom of the descent line. He's talking about the depth of God's riches. He then asks rhetorical questions that puts God in his proper place. He's alluding back to Job and to Isaiah. His first question is, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? In other words, who's giving God advice? This is unsolicited advice. It's like me going up to Amanda and, and saying, babe, she's my wife, so I can call her babe. <laughs> if any of you wonder, I'm not going to get in trouble here. Babe, let me tell you about hairstyles. I'm an expert at hairstyles. <laughs> a man would be like, what are you talking about? You can't advise me on how to do my hair. It's the same way with God. Here we are, we're trying to ask God how to, we're trying to give him advice. We're trying to tell him how to do things. And he asked in Job, his friends are trying to give him advice. Actually, his, their advice is really good until they open their mouths. <laughs> and at the very end of Job chapter 38, God asks, who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Amanda could say, Paul, why are you darkening my counsel? You have no idea what you're talking about. Stop giving me unsolicited advice. God's saying, where were you when I created the sunset that you enjoy on Pismo Beach? Where were you when I created the sands on Pismo Beach? When I laid the foundations of the earth? It's a rhetorical question because none of us were there. And we try to think we can give him advice. But when we understand God's sovereignty, we know that his plan can never be thwarted. His riches are inexhaustible. His wisdom is bottomless. And his knowledge is deep. God's descent line never ends. And as grabbing hold of it, it should give us comfort. His plan is perfect, and he knows what he's doing. When millions of babies are being aborted, we ask why. When schoolmasters are occurring, we're asking why. But we shouldn't be surprised. As we follow his descent line, Paul starts in Romans 1, and he gives us the stark reality of mankind. In Romans 1, he talks about man having a worship issue. See, claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over to passions because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. And then man is turned over to his passions 
And what's the most, the deepest thing, the deepest form of worship that God has given us? It's our sexuality. And that's why we're wondering, we shouldn't be wondering why marriage is being redefined. Because when Paul lays out what these people are doing in Romans 1, it all ends up turning into sexual perversion. We have a worship issue. It's a sin issue. In recent news, I don't know if you guys have seen this, Playboy announced that they're going to start ha- stop having nude photos in their magazines. At first, this looks like good news. But there's a much deeper issue. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he wrote an article. It's called Bad News Indeed. Playboy opened the floodgates, and now the culture is drowning. And what Albert Moeller talks about is he talks about how the philosophy of Playboy is not that sexual, that this is sexual sin, that this is immoral. They don't, aren't stopping nude photos because they see something wrong with it, something sinful. But they're stopping because now they know that by a click of a button, you can get whatever you want online. See, Hugh Hefner, who founded Playboy, he doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. He was a sexual liberator. He tried to get us out of this cage, out of sexual traditional constraints that the Bible teaches between a man and a wife. And what he really did is put us back in a cage. He opened the floodgates and we're drowning. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that you're a slave to whoever you obey, either to sin which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to eternal life. So Moeller's talking about Playboy's not doing this because of moral issues. Our culture, the waves pushing against us, our morality, the morals, we have nowhere to go. The line's been cut in the boat, it's pitch black, and people don't know what's up, down, right, left. You have schools trying to fight against government mandates about transgenders and how to deal with them. Parents are standing up saying, my girls don't feel safe if you're going to allow a transgender who was born a man go into the girls' restroom. You have a transgender who's cage fighting against women. This cage fighter broke another girl's orbital bone in her face. And that girl said, I, when I fought this transgender person, I've never felt strength like that before. Because that person was born a man. Our culture is insane. These waves are pushing against us, and we don't know what's up. We don't know what's down. But Paul lays out this descent line, and he talks about the stark realities of mankind. But then he goes down to the hope in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. It's the hope. It's the light amidst these waves of our culture, amidst this chaos. Paul grabs onto the gospel. He grabs onto the descent line, which is held together by Jesus. Not only is that line held together by Jesus, but when the current uh, waves of the culture toss us back and forth, if we can't feel like we can hold on to it, it's Jesus that holds on to it for us. No matter what happens to us, Jesus will never let us go. 
Paul lays that out in the descent line as well. He gets to Romans 8, and he says, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all laid out in this descent line. It co- it goes, the doctrine goes into our head. It goes down, it dives deep down into the recesses of our hearts. And we grab a hold of it. God grabs a hold of us. We were once enemies of God, but we've been reconciled through the death of his son, Jesus. And we can't understand it. Why would God do that? An enemy. Why would he save me? A sinner. What makes Christianity so offensive to many is the idea of grace. We don't have to do anything. What, you telling me Jeffrey Dahmer became a believer in prison before he was killed? Do you know what he did to people? It's offensive. What if somebody came home and told you, I believe Adolf Hitler was saved? There's no history of that, by the way. I'm not saying he was. But that would be offensive to us, because look how many people were killed because of him. But God's mercy extends as far as the curse. God can save who he wants. Because his descent line never ends. We can, we can get into this trap where we think that we can do something to earn God's grace. If we don't understand grace, it's works religion. We seek, to, we seek to get God's approval. We seek to give him a gift. But Paul says we think we can give him a gift that he'll repay us. Who has given him a gift that he might repay us? The ironic thing is, everything we have is a gift from God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So when we try to earn our way to God's favor, God says, your works are filthy rags. I've given you everything. We may not fully comprehend God's mind, but now we have the mind of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We may not fully understand the depth of God's riches, but now we are united with Christ as he holds on to that descent line for us, and we have riches forevermore. Paul was gripped by the truth, and it sunk to the recesses of his heart. Because the more he dove into God's riches, the more he could see that God's descent line never ends. And because God's descent line never ends, live out the gospel. You see, the first 11 chapters, Paul's laying out this doctrinal descent. But then at this praise, he's transitioning now to exhortation. Now that you've seen from the surface all the way down in the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, now live out the gospel. Any work we do, when we're doing work, It's not our own, though. The motivation is not to earn or try to give a gift to God. It's God who grips our hearts, and he bends our will. Augustine and Martin Luther, they expanded on what sin was. They tried to expand on how to define sin. And they said that sin was a curving in on ourselves. It's pride. It's looking inward on ourselves. But see, when the gospel grabs a hold of us, we start to look outward, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And that's what should motivate our faith and our works. On faith and works, Martin Luther in his preface to Romans, he says, faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active, 
Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. He gropes and he searches about him for faith and good works, but doesn't know what faith or good works are. Even so, he chatters on with a great many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through faith, a person will do good to everyone without coercion, willingly and happily. He will serve everyone, suffer everything for the love and praise of God, who has shown him such grace. It is impossible to separate works from faith as burning and shining from fire. This great doxology, this praise of God, the greatness of God, is a transitional point between doctrine and exhortation. Now live out the gospel. We live the gospel, we live out the gospel, because as we dive down into God's riches, it becomes a reality. It comes from our mind down to, and through our hearts. A transformed heart is a transformed life. Doctrine is not lame. Doctrine is not boring. It affects how we live. And to live the gospel and to glorify God means that we can glorify him wherever we're at. Do you work somewhere where somebody really bugs you, where somebody really annoys you? God's put you there for a reason, to love the unlovable. Do you work in a competitive business where you make a lot of money? Profit is not a bad thing. In Wayne Grudem's book, Business for the Glory of God, he says, therefore, in all our ownership of property and in all our stewardship, if we want to glorify God in business, we should seek to avoid pride and to have hearts full of love and humility toward others and toward God in producing goods and services for others. And in using them for our own enjoyment, we should have hearts of thanksgiving to God for his goodness in providing these things to us. All things have been given to us. The resources that we have, God has given to us. There's nothing we can give back to him. When Paul says that we do all things to glorify God, we can do it wherever we're at. Whether we're at Wendy's eating hamburgers, whether we're at me and Ed's who can't say, pronounce, can't, doesn't have proper grammar, we can glorify God with the people around us. We can bless others around us. When I was diving, anytime I dive, I need equipment to go diving with. I need the weights to get me down in the water. I need the regulator to breathe through. I need the jacket for the buoyancy as I go in and out through the water. I need the, the reel if I'm going in through the boat. That's how we live out the gospel is the, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our equipment. And as we grab on a line, it's the Holy Spirit that allows that truth to go into our hearts. I had to have the right equipment when I scuba dive. This descent like that Paul has given us gives us the equipment. It's the Holy Spirit that's renewing our minds and allowing us to live out the gospel. God gives us the power to live godly lives. It's not our own efforts. We're weak sinners that need to depend on God. We need to depend on Jesus to hold on to that line. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Paul says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. We may not know the mind of God. It may be too deep. But we have the mind of Christ. 
And Paul has laid out this descent line of God's plan. We may not be able to fully exhaust the riches of God, but it's the riches being united to Christ. We live out the gospel because we have riches forevermore. God's descent line never ends. Paul's doxology was a result of intense diving into the riches of God. He went along this descent line of God's riches, and he saw that it was bottomless. It never ends. And he praises God. Paul doesn't think doctrine's born. He lays out doctrine. He doesn't think it's lame. It led to a transformed life. And he wants us to have transformed life when we see the gospel. It's Jesus who holds that line, that descent line of God's that never ends. When I saw that boat come into view, all I could do is make garbled words. But by the grace of God, Paul has praised God with some of the most, what I see as some of the most important words in all of scriptures, the greatness of God, who God is. And a proper doctrine of who God is affects, should affect the way we live. I encourage you to read Romans. You don't have to memorize it word for word. But follow that descent line that Paul draws out for us. Dive into the depth of the riches of God. And go out and live gospel-centered lives. I want to echo an ending. I want to echo the words of Martin Luther. Each and every Christian should make this letter the habitual and constant object of his study. God grant us his grace to do so. Don't drink Kurik Christianity. Love the deep truths of God. Descend down that line. And the more we deal with this beautiful, these beautiful truths of God's story, the better it tastes. God's descent line never ends. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we read your truths, as we go through your word that's been revealed to us, help it to enter our minds. Help us to wrestle with it in our minds, but not just to stop there, but to dive down into the recesses of our hearts. Help us not to be conformed to the patterns of the world, these waves that are tossing us back and forth, but help us be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we follow the, your redemptive story, this descent line of truth. Help it affect our lives as we go out. Help us to be a blessing to others. And it's by your grace that we're able to do so. I thank you for the Apostle Paul, and I thank you for all the New, New Testament writers, Old Testament writers, giving us a story of who you are, what you've revealed to us. I thank you for your grace again. In your precious name, amen.